A reading from John 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you that so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay, lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name, and I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. So in Jewish culture and ritual, grapes and grapevines were a very significant symbol. If we look at scripture, many biblical passages, particularly in the Old Testament, we see the scriptures speaking of grapes and grapevines, such as Psalm 80, Isaiah 5 and Jeremiah 2, uh, all liken Israel to a vineyard and liken God to the owner of the vineyard. And then uh, throughout the Old Testament, there is this this idea that an abundance of grape fruit and wine was a blessing, was seen as a blessing upon Israel. But uh, any, um, any threats to national disaster were often described as laying waste to the country's vineyards. So this was a very prominent symbol and so prominent was the symbolism of grapes and grapevines that the, the, the Jewish temple in the first century had this magnificent golden ornamental vine that hung over the inner portal to the temple. Um, as Jesus is speaking these words from John 15, which we've just heard, uh, the, he and his disciples have left the room where they celebrated the Passover and they are now heading out of the city to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will spend his last few hours alive in prayer. And it 
it's highly likely that as they're exiting the city, they pass the temple and seeing this uh, ornamental vine hanging in the inner, over the inner portal and knowing the symbolism of vineyards and vines for his disciples and the Jewish people in general, Jesus is inspired to use this metaphor to describe um, his, desi- his des- desires for how the disciples are to live uh, once he's gone. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I will, that growing up, I read this passage as a you're in or you're out passage. So you're in, um, if, as in like you, you're a branch that stays on the vine if you believe in Jesus and you're a Christian, then you're one of the branches that produces fruit and grows. But if you are someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, then you're one of the branches that is cut off and thrown into the fire. But I actually think uh, Pastor Mark, what he spoke about last week, is very helpful in uh, hearing what we, in, in receiving and interpreting what we hear in this passage this morning. Last week in his sermon, Mark said that these words, particularly from chapters um, 13 through 15, uh, are are Jesus' last will and testament to his disciples. And a last will and testament in the first century was about affirming familial relationships and passing on a family legacy. And we see here that Jesus is affirming his relationships that he has with his disciples. And he's passing on the family legacy that that he has with Father God. He's passing that on to the disciples and inviting them to join in that legacy that he has enjoyed. Um, So in these words, specifically as we look at them today in uh, John 15, Jesus is reminding his disciples through the metaphor of a vine that they are connected to God, the Father God, in relationship, because of their relationship with Christ and that they can receive this life-giving legacy that, of union with God that Jesus himself has enjoyed. He's saying, you can have this too. And this is how I want you to live once I'm gone. And notice that Jesus cannot say that he is the vine without mentioning the Father as the vine grower. You cannot have Jesus Christ without Father God. And those two persons of the, of the Trinity are joined by the Holy Spirit. So we, there's this, somehow there's this mysterious union of three persons as one. They're fully united as one. And then when we come back to this imagery of the vine and the branches, the branches are one with the vine. Jesus is teaching us about our own qualitative connectedness to the triune God. That as creatures who have been made by God out of love for relationship with him, the essence of our very selves is connected to God. And Jesus is pointing us directly back and saying this connection through me This is essential. This is your essential source of nourishment and life. The imagery is beautiful, I I think. The branches, when they are connected to the vine, when they are connected to the life source, then they produce fruit. The command in this passage is not about producing fruit. The command in this passage is about abiding. 
And as humans, we are connected to God because we have been created by God. The reality is God is our life source. We cannot exist apart from God. But as we look around, we see that so many people do believe that they can live apart from God. But Jesus is saying, he's reminding us, hey, you can't live apart from God. Learn to live united and one and connected to your life source because out of that place, you will have life in abundance. There will be an abundance of fruit. Thomas R. Kelly, a well-known Quaker and a Christian contemplative or a Christian mystic, he wrote a book called A Testament to Devotion. And in this book, he, he uh, wrote this, this quote. Life is meant to be lived from a center, a divine center. Each one of us can live such a life of amazing power and peace and serenity, of integration and confidence and simplified multiplicity on one condition. That is, if we really want to. There is a divine abyss within all of us, a holy, infinite center, a heart, a life who speaks in us and through us to the world. We have all heard this holy whisper at times. At times we have followed the whisper, an amazing equilibrium of life, amazing effectiveness of living sets in. But too many of us have heeded the voice only at times. Jesus is using the metaphor of the grapevine to give us imagery to describe this divine center that Thomas uh, Kelly is talking about, this divine abyss that is within all of us and teaching us that if we're willing to pursue that, to remain connected to that place where Christ dwells within, then what lead, that, that is what leads to nourishment. That is what leads to power and peace and confidence and effectiveness in life. That is what leads to fruit. And it is when we are connected to Christ, seeking our nourishment and sustenance in him, the byproduct of that is fruit. And what is this fruit? Well, I... I believe, I, I, like this, I like this description. A grapevine cannot produce fruit other than grapes. A fig produces figs. A hummingbird begets more hummingbirds. A dog gives birth to more dogs. Divine love can only beget more divine love. So it goes that if we are connected to Christ and we remain and abide in Christ's love, the fruit that will be produced is self-surrendering, unconditional love. And this is what Jesus says in verse 6, Just as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, either can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them, see that union, abide in me and I in them, bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. But what do we do with Jesus' words about the branches who produce no fruit um, being removed and cut off? 
In verse 7, Jesus says, Who does, Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. In Eugene Peterson's message version, it says this, Separated you can produce, sorry, separated you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood. This version about being separated reminds me of many of the Christian contemplatives or mystics throughout history who talk about this as it relates to the spiritual journey and the nature of prayer. So people like St. Teresa of Avila, who we have been introduced to in our awakened groups, or St. John of the Cross, or Thomas Merton, or A.W. Tozer. Uh, These people and many others taught on the idea of a separate self. Um, And this idea is, the reality of of the separate self is an illusion because we are created by God, for God, therefore we cannot, be, we cannot be separate from God. We are in complete and total connection to him at all times. But we, li- we can live as though we are separate from God. We, we can live from a place of believing the lie that we are not connected to God. And this was the temptation of Adam and Eve, right? They bought into the lie that they could live separate from God. And this is the illusion that we continue to perpetuate in our own lives and throughout the world. Believing this lie that we are separate from God and what that ends up doing is that it motivates us to care for me and my needs. We're we're out to survive. We're out to make sure that what we need, what we want is what we get. And that is unlike Jesus Christ, who lived a life of self-surrendering love for the sake of others. Um, so when we, when we look at Christ, that is the kind of life that is produced if we abide in him. But when we live from a place of separateness, we disregard others rather than having self-surrendering love for the sake of others. We disregard others, whether that be God or fellow humans, or even fellow Christians. It could be animals, it could be creation and the planet and the environment. We, we disregard all of those things, um, all for the sake of our own wants, our own needs, our own desires, and our own plans. But I also think it can um, manifest itself in, in this other way as well. I think it can this lie of separateness can manifest itself in believing that we are not good enough, that we have to earn God's love, that we have to strive and work for God's love. That is another form of believing that we are separate from God and we've got to do something um, either to get God's love or we've got to figure it out on our own. And this is not what God wants for us. Some of you may have heard about this tool. It's the, the Enneagram personality tool. Uh, some of you may, I think some of you have heard of it. Some of you may have not have, so it might be unfamiliar to you. But the reason I bring it up is because I believe the Enneagram tool is very helpful for helping us discover how we hear that lie of separateness and then how we 
um, are motivated to strive to take care of ourselves, to take care of me and my desires out of believing the lie that we're separate. Because the way I hear and believe the lie that I'm separate may be different to the way you hear and believe that lie. And so then we show up and manifest that separateness in different ways. So what, what the Enneagram is helpful for if we, if we explore it with Christ is that Christ can show us um, how that lie is, is being lived out in our lives and um, bring us back into union with him. So I just give that to you as something that you might want to explore. But ultimately, this is why the second person of the Trinity came to earth, right? The, the son came to earth incarnate in Jesus Christ to save us from this deception, to save us from this lie that we are separate from God and to show us how to live in connection, how to live in union, how to live abiding in God. And now his time has come as, as we are in uh, John 15. Jesus' time has come. After three years of teaching his disciples, everything that he has learned from Father God, he is now reminding them again, hey, the life of union and connection that you've seen me live, this is possible for you too. The life of fruit and effectiveness that you have seen me live, this is this is available and possible for you too if you abide in me and in the Trinity. And so this, I think, connects us again to what um, Jesus is saying in verses 8 through 11, that, that this connection, uh, there's this connection between love and obedience, that when we obey Jesus, um, we love Jesus. And when we love Jesus, we obey Jesus. And it, this is constant um, kind of love and obey, love and obey, love and obey that comes out of being, of abiding with Christ in God. This is the authentic relationship that the triune God lives themselves in that oneness, in that mysterious oneness um, of three persons in one God. They live that themselves and they invite us to to be one in that with them too don't ask me how it works I have no idea but that is what we see in scripture that when we love God we obey God and when we obey God we love God and it's this beautiful oneness so how do we apply this to our lives how does this intersect with our lives. Well, like I said, the command here that Jesus is giving us is to abide. It's not to bear fruit. It is to abide. And when we abide, then we will bear the fruit. And when it comes to abiding, what I have, what I'm noticing more and more is that those throughout Christian history who have most being able to articulate their experience of that oneness with God, of that deep abiding that Jesus is talking about here, are those who have engaged in the contemplative practices of silence and stillness and solitude. And they've engaged with contemplative prayer practices. 
And I, I think the more I look at the Gospels and the life of Jesus, when we look at him, he is constantly going away to pray. Silence and stillness and solitude were essential for Jesus as a means for abiding with the Father. And Jesus tells his disciples, we see in scripture, Jesus tells his disciples, whenever you pray, go into your inner room. And the message version says, and be there as simply and as honestly as you can. Another time Jesus' disciples say to him, hey, can you teach us to pray like John the Baptist's disciples pray? I mean, presumably Jesus has already been praying with his disciples. They've seen how he prays, yet for some reason they're asking him to teach them how to pray. And he gives them words. He gives them the the Lord's Prayer, which we use in our worship services and we may say personally on a daily basis. But why is that? Why, Why are the disciples asking Jesus to teach them how to pray? Why are they asking him to give them words to pray? Maybe it's because Jesus engaged with contemplative silence and stillness and solitude as his mode of of and means of abiding with the father as his means of prayer and the disciples are saying hey can we have some words too so i believe that one of the um i believe that there's something to this that contemplation the contemplative practices are a really important means for leading us into abiding with god they're not the end in themselves it's not The point is not to do the contemplative practices for doing it as a task to be done. The point is as a way to enter in and become open and available to the triune God. So what is contemplation? Um, Well, simply put, contemplation in the forms of silence and stillness and solitude, and there's different practices that are available in those spaces. They, contemplation invites us to awaken to God's presence and restfully be in his presence in every moment as it is. Um, contemplative prayer practices like the one Mark reminded us of last week, breath prayer, is a way to slow down and be still and be in the presence of God. There are other prayer practices like my favorite centering prayer. That's my one that I tend to go to the most. Um, Prayer of recollection, even walking a prayer labyrinth. There's a number of prayer labyrinths around um, San Diego and that is a, a, a form of contemplative prayer walking. But in these contemplative practices, we are invited to simply be with God. We're not asking God for things. We're not doing anything for God, but we're simply opening ourselves to the triune God and trusting that we will be be received into God's loving and open and restful arms. So I want to give you a simple uh, practice that you can start doing, especially for those of you who might be brand new to stillness and silence. Um, I want to just offer you this practice to do. It's simply this. Sit for five minutes with God. Try and do that every day to just sit 
for five minutes with God. And as you come into that place of, of going into your inner room, getting rid of all distractions and sit and simply place yourself, intentionally place yourself into the presence of God with the words, here I am, Lord. And then inevitably distractions, thoughts, feelings, to-do lists are going to come to mind. Maybe you even get an itchy nose or the body feels a bit cranky or whatever it might happen. Whatever distracts you from the presence of God, because those things will come, simply let them go and come back to being in the presence of God, repeating those words, here I am, Lord. And you might need to set a timer so that you don't continually look at the clock to see how long it's been going for. That way you can just rest and forget. But five minutes of sitting in silence and stillness before the Lord, whenever distractions coming up saying, here I am, Lord. A practice like this invites us to be with God, to rest as a beloved child of God, to not have to do anything for for God, but simply to be in his embrace, to rest in his embrace. And I believe that as we learn how to go from that place of being in the presence, loved and nourished by God, that when we go and we do, We're going from a place of nourishment. We're going from a place of of sustenance. We're going from a place of fullness and fruit will grow. A.W. Tozer, I mentioned him before, but A.W. Tozer is one, uh, he's one of the most famous evangelical contemplatives or evangelical uh, mystics. And he wrote a book called The Roots of Righteousness. And in this book, he wrote this. Historically, the West, and when he's saying the West, he means Western religion, so Christianity. Historically, the West has tended to throw its chief emphasis upon doing and the East, Eastern religions, upon being. Were human nature perfect, there would be no discrepancy between being and doing. The unfallen man would simply live from within Without giving it a thought, his actions would be a true expression of their inner being. Friends, I, when I think of this quote, when I hear this quote, I think this is what we see Jesus doing. He is, he, there's no discrepancy in him. There's no division in him. There's no separateness. He hasn't believed the lie that we're separate from God. He is living from a place of being and doing as one because he's one with the father and in John 15 that is what he is inviting us as his disciples to learn how to do he is inviting us to be with God and out of that place of being do so friends I I pray that you would accept this invitation to be to rest, to abide in Christ, just like the branches of a vine learn to, well, they don't even learn. They just simply do. They be and trust that the vine will um, give them the life source that they need to produce fruit. Would that be so in our lives as we seek the kingdom of God?